0: Refined Labs, this is State of Demand Gen.
1: All right, everyone, let's get started. Happy Tuesday. How's it going? You're going to notice that I look this way because the laptop's over here, but we're testing out some new stuff. Looking forward to this. We are at Demand Gen Live. Great to he- have you here on Tuesday. couple announcements before we get started with the agenda. First, we have an event with Dave Gerhardt on the first of the month at the uh, Demand Gen Expert Series with Dave Gerhardt this Thursday. At 12 p.m eastern on november 4th 12 p.m eastern is a friendly time for the uk and the eu and we'll be covering the topic of community coming from two two people that have built pretty significant ones so i think there'll be some really actionable tips we'll do a QA. q a there'll be a lot to learn as you move in community events content are the drivers and so we'll be laying out some secrets and some ways for people to uh to continue to up their game there next it's been uh, another announcement. It's been cool. We've been hovering in the top 25 marketing podcasts in the U S. And so if you haven't already, I would really, and you've gotten value from this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you took 30 seconds and gone on, went on to Apple podcasts and left a rating. doesn't have to be five stars. I'd appreciate five stars, but you, you leave whatever you want. I would highly appreciate it if you left a review, if you've gotten a value from this podcast. And the last one, just a little bit of a story that I think is interesting. And so I was talking to a, uh, a CMO the other day, we were getting ready to decide whether or not we were going to work together and I had explained the the, uh, you know, the whole model, the whole concept of we're moving to a holistic website funnel, we think differently about attribution, you're not going to have software based attribution, like direct channel reporting, like you're accustomed to. He and the person he was with looked at, looked back at me and said, so what do you normally tell the CFO about this when they like to see all the direct stuff? And I look back at them and I said, you see that analysis we just did where your CAC payback is 36 months. We show them that if they want direct attribution, they can continue to expect this. And then when they see that, they're like, oh, and then six months later, you see CAC go down, you see cost per qualified opportunity go down, you see cost per demo go down. All the business metrics that the CFO should really care about move in the right direction. And that's how you get people on board with seeing that you don't need direct attribution. You've just been brainwashed to think that you need it by technology vendors for the past 10 years. Okay, now we got all those things out of the way. I'm feeling good. Let's get into the agenda. A topic that I feel super passionate about was Sparked. Sparked by my friend Gatano Dinardi's post. I got to print it printed out here. For those of you who don't know, Gatano was the OG. Him and I actually just had a random idea one day that we were gonna host this thing called demand gen live and talk about marketing and show up and and see if anyone would come and 20 people showed up and that's how demand gen live started back in uh, march april 2020 and so gatano had a post that went a little bit viral one uh one that i commented on talking about how c-level executives are frustrated about how difficult it is to hire top-tier marketers right now and my comment was There's never been a better time to be a top-tier B2B marketer than right this second. I've been seeing this progress since 2017. When I looked and I saw the way that buyers were actually buying versus how companies were trying to sell, and there was a gap of where buyers would want to do most of it on their own. When buyers want to do most of it on their own, it becomes more of a marketing-owned journey. And that's why marketing has become more and more valuable over the past five years. And now over the past 18 months, for obvious reasons, the digital transformation, the movement to digital, the ability to communicate with buyers in progressive new places has become ultra valuable to companies, incredibly valuable. It's been great for me to watch it happen over the the past five years. It's going to continue... To happen to a place where it will not be long before top tier demand marketers are making what a top AE would make 300, 400, 500 K to drive demand to own demand in a company. Some of it's already happening in companies. It's going to be more of the norm than the outlier in the future is what I expect, but only for the truly top tier, I think there's probably a 1, 2, 3% of marketers that can be in the, in that place and own pipeline and drive results. I don't think a lot of people truly understand that when you own the pipeline number as a marketer, all the underlying things that go into making it happen. Just think it's about like collecting leads, buying ads. There's so many underlying details about looking at the sources, analyzing Salesforce data, making projections, doing the planning, understanding how your media and content plan need to, bubble up to achieving that goal as the goals keep growing. And so there's just a, there's a huge, 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 huge value in a marketer that can do that. Now, additionally, the way that things have been changing over the past 18 months creates what I call a divergence in marketing, where we have marketers that are from the past that are still doing a lot of the, the, just basically running the playbook. 2011 hubspot inbound whatever you want to call it demand waterfall 2012 whatever you want to call it and the marketers that have kind of moved past that to see what buyers are doing in places where you need to forget a lot of the things that you've been trained to do like i mentioned attribution at the beginning a focus on leads the thinking that each individual channel needs to bubble up into some type of funnel i actually think differently about this i've never communicated it maybe we'll get into a little bit more detail on that that At this point now, you don't have a funnel. What you have is you have all of your buyers, your TAM or your SAM, however you want to look at it, but basically all of your buyers that are out there that are not in market to buy. You should be marketing to them all the time and you should be marketing to them in a certain way because they don't have intent to buy. And then you have all of those buyers that move in market. So there's only two, you define your target market and then all you have is not in market, in market, different marketing strategies for both of them. Once they hit pipeline, you think differently about it. But the idea that you go and you collect someone that's not in market and then try and push them through marketing automation to get them down there. I just don't see that working anymore. And so we have this progression inside of I'm going in a bunch of places, but I'm having fun with this. So just let's go. There's a progression here inside of communities, content, like direct engagement in places that are difficult to measure, that companies don't value or don't respect, that companies don't see because nobody's published some report like McKinsey hasn't published some report, Gartner hasn't published some report to tell you that you should be in these communities, to tell you how you should act in them, to, to tell you that you should be publishing content in the places where your buyers hang out every single day. But it's obvious. And so there are the companies and there are the marketers that are going to wait for a report in order to do it. And in 2026, they'll be marketing on LinkedIn. And at that point, they would have been seven or eight years late. And the ability to see those changes comes down to nothing more than being aligned and understanding of where your buyers are. Customer research will tell you all these different things. And so if we get back to it, There's never been a better time to be a top tier B2B marketer for all of those reasons. I remember in 2016, came into a new company, was a B2B marketer, met the VP of sales, and you could feel that the VP of sales looks down on you as a marketer. Doesn't happen anymore because the value of marketing is so much greater. So companies are starting to figure out that, CROs, sales teams are starting to figure that out that was way different just five years ago. The attitude that salespeople had and sales leaders had toward marketers just five years ago is completely different. The reason is because they recognize that they need them to hit their revenue targets now. And so I'm gonna leave it at that for right now. Let's get into a couple questions that people have some.
2: When you were uh, talking about the, the rise of the marketer that makes as much as a top tier AE, we had a question from Maya. And she said, you were talking about how the top one percent of demand marketers can kind of get there. She said, How do you think these demand experts will evolve, especially when strategy for consistent demand requires demand and brand? And then David dropped a comment in there and said, You if you look at a director or VP of demand gen job description, the list of capabilities and experiences is like 70% of the entire marketing department. How do you become the top one percent?
1: First off. Brand and demand are the same thing. People. It's the same thing when executed properly. The difference is whether you're using paid or organic, but as a demand leader, you should be able to do both. You should be able to post organic content. You should be able to make a video podcast and you should be able to run media to drive results. And you need to be able to operate both of those. I can't believe it's like companies still think that it's 1998 where brand is building trade shows and doing corporate PR and doing press releases and a bunch of stuff that doesn't drive results and demand is running ads to just generate leads. Neither of those are the right way to look at it, put them together and then execute paid and organic in a modern way. That's one big thing for people that are looking to be in the 1%. Brand, demand, product marketing, and at least a touch of field. I think you need all of them to be in that 1%. some people think like whoa that feels so far away from where i am right now doesn't mean you have to do the job for five years and have a bunch of experience what it means is that you have to understand the function you need to understand how to apply it into a full marketing mix like the idea that in field if you're running events you go and do an event but while you're doing it you think about how am i going to amplify this digitally so you bring a videographer and you record the podcast and then you do an event that becomes digital content that goes into email campaigns that you use for media that goes onto a podcast and you see how offline online can blend together when you don't have these silos and walls between each different marketing function so figuring out how to use all of those i think is super important a uh another key piece this is going to sound like a broken record but it really is the truth you need to understand your customers better than anyone else, one else in the company. It's not a competition, but it's a mindset that you need to have, that I'm going to be curious, I'm going to learn, I'm going to be interacting with people every day that are my buyer, that are my customer, that do those jobs, that, these are, that I'm gonna interact with the people that my buyers listen to, all of those details. And then the last one, I'm sure there's more, but here's another one. Is that you need to be able to quantify your impact at the CEO, CFO level. You need to be able to go and have a conversation and have a business case that says, we spent 500K on this. It drove this much revenue, which is better than other ways that we're doing to drive revenue. And if we did X, Y, and Z, we could scale that up. This is how we're going to do it. And being able to have a business conversation at a level of growth rate, customer acquisition cost, competitive advantage, cost per sales qualified opportunity, pipeline velocity, real business metrics. Those are some of the things that you need if you want to be in the comp band of a top AE, but don't get it confused. If you're a demand leader, you're driving Way more impact than any individual rep when you're executing flawlessly,
2: all right. Omar has a follow-up question, so I'm gonna let him come on and ask this live
1: all right, Chris, can you hear me? Yeah, I can see you up here too. Omar. this thing's pretty cool. What's up, Hey, buddy? how you doing? doing great, man. I appreciated the post today.
3: Absolutely. you know selfishly why I did that was that I was like, you know I need some I need some new new friends some 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 more friends. And so, of course, like anytime a uh, I jump in the DGL community. Like I always get like a lot of great friend requests and I'm, I'm super grateful for it. You've built an amazing tribe of people. I think we're definitely a tribe at this point.
1: Yeah, everyone here is awesome.
3: Definitely. So totally agree with you. And I love this concept that people who are like, you know, heads of marketing or head of demand should be compensated very much like a salesperson in the sense that they're affecting pipeline. I absolutely agree with you on that. So I want to put a scenario in front of you and I want to see how you think about this in terms of the compensation. So for the B2B side and for me like being in healthcare, some of these deals uh, take anywhere from six to nine months, sometimes a little bit longer if you're dealing with a hospital system, right? That's sort of a long time for a sales cycle. And so to get graded and uh, in terms of like expectations as a, as a marketer, what ends up happening is of course is the whole the MQL lead, lead game, right? And so there's this fine balance where that's gonna be part of the conversation no matter what, right? And so my question to you is if you were to go in and let's say negotiate a role like that where it's let's say it's I don't know commission based or percentage revenue something how do you think about structuring that out and how do you do it so that you don't end up setting yourself up to where every let's say month or quarter the thing that you're con- that people are constantly going back to and checking if let's say you're not closing deals because it's a long sales cycle is like how many MQLs are coming in so there's, like a, there's a fine balance of how you set those expectations.
1: Does that make sense? It does. I got quite a few thoughts on this, so let's get into it. Please, I want you to riff on this one, man. So the first one is if I was going to design a commission plan, then the commission between sales and marketing would be perfectly aligned. So that would be one of them. It doesn't matter whether it's sourced through marketing, whether it's sourced through sales, like the commission plan is exactly the same. So everyone is working toward the exact same goals. That's one way to look at it. Another thing that I've been thinking about recently, because I've been doing, I've been thinking about this and doing this, and I've been on a commission-based plan as a marketer before, and everyone wants to take the commission world, right? And then put marketing in it. But just to do a thought experiment here, maybe we need to go the other way. Maybe it's not that marketing needs commissions. It's that sales needs just to be salary. Mm. And it'd be really like, just think if sales wasn't based on commissions, how much different that you could structure your organization to be customer centric in a buying process. The commissions and the individual scoring of reps creates all of the complexity and all the challenges that degrade customer experience in my view. And so perhaps what we need to do is we need to think differently about how sales is commissioned. I know that everyone that's listening to this podcast, it's a sales rep, is going to be like, hey, fuck you, Chris, like I'm good with my commission plan. But it could, if it was actually played out and you had marketing running and instead of having 100 reps, you only needed 50 and everyone got paid more and didn't need to go and eat, like, eat what they kill or whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. You could have a way different sales environment with way happier customers, and so I'm just throwing that out there as an experiment. I know that there's someone that's listening to this that has done something like that. I'd be interested to learn. It's something that we're also thinking about pioneering here at Refine Labs. The last one, so that's the last one to think about here, and it's part of the standardized measurement system that we plan on publishing sometime in Q4 is that we have a um, part of our definitions is what we call a hero, a high intent revenue opportunity where marketing generates pipeline that comes through that hits a certain stage that sales wins at predictable win rates greater than 20%. We're considering after we look at the data increasing that to 25% actually. So one out of five or one out of four deals, sales is gonna win consistently. And then you have the win rate of of the deals from that stage as a quality control metric. And so as long as the deals keep winning at that percentage, then you can score marketing on that leading metric of qualify or hero, which would essentially be close to the definition of what companies call a sales qualified opportunity right now, but with a little bit of a slightly different definition that's standardized. And then marketing could be scored on that, which they can move in 30 days, not six to nine months. That's what we would use to forecast revenue. And so we have the same, you know what I mean? It's the same situation when we go in there and companies are like, we got a six-month sales cycle. Where's the ROI? Duh, 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 right, and then we come in, and and you can see, you can say, like from this stage, you win thirty-three percent of of deals. We just put three million dollars in that deal stage. If the win rates stay consistent, which they are going to, then you're going to do a million dollars close one out of that pipeline, and so then you can forecast that out, and then you can say, okay, we spent two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on media in the period we generated 3 million in pipe that we win at 33% so we spent 250 we just made a million dollars in revenue i know there's going to be a sales cycle lag but the early indication here is that we should pump more money into what's working here so that gives you a especially once the system is running and stable like you've been doing that for 6 months you can see that the win rates are very predictable while the system is stable so as long as you're not injecting bad leads and sources that are not good that when they get to that stage, you're going to win at that percentage or better as long as there's, like I said, no changes in marketing and no major environmental or or market changes that are outside of the company's control. So those are three different options, commission-based, no commission on both sides or some type of leading metric to score a variable comp plan.
3: Got it. I like that. The third one makes a lot of sense and it makes sense in terms of, uh, while it might have a longer sales cycle, theoretically, like you'll see an improvement in qualified pipeline, and then you're incentivized to focus on the thing that actually works versus, I think a lot of times, both in marketing sales, but especially marketing, we have a tendency to try and do a system based approach of like a lot of stuff and it just kind of spreads our budget thin it spreads spreads our energy and resources thin and then like nothing kind of works it's like eh, everything kind of half-assed worked and let's just keep going until until something breaks through and your thing is to look at where where your win percentage is highest
1: and focus on it is that correct More or less. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about it on the last demand gen live, I've been calling it a reverse conversion path analysis or reverse buyer journey analysis, which basically looks at revenue, calculates back up. What was the path to conversion? You break out sales velocity metrics from each of those different sources, and then you figure out which are the ones where I want buyers to flow through. So yeah, pretty. And then where the win rates or sales velocity is highest, then you architect the rest of the marketing mix around those destinations. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good to see you, Omar.
2: All right. Uh, when you were talking about how to become the 1% demand marketer, Anna wanted to ask a clarifying question about paid versus organic. So I'll have her come on next. Love that. That was
4: interesting. I was just thinking through that. Like Organic versus paid is very different. And sometimes I think it's it's almost like a risk. If I know too much about paid like especially today, maybe in the future, it won't look like this, but direct response and paid is very, like very much tied to sales. It doesn't take so long. So you're, and you're thinking about like, how do I get this person to convert quickly versus organic? I think of as like, it's okay to get high quality stuff out there, but you're not looking for a conversion right away. So my question is, can you really expect one person to have the skills like can organic and paid live within one person to understand both so well what do you think
1: that's not how everyone thinks about paid and how you have to think about paid that's just how you think about it so you're in your head you think that paid needs to be short-term direct response more like sales i think about it very differently i think about it just like it's organic Just that i'm guaranteed to give the content to the buyer that I want, as opposed to organic i'm not guaranteed it but it's free. And so, this is just a difference about whether i'm paying for the distribution or not, not and my objectives are pretty much the same. And so the type of content that you produce and things like that are going to vary. The mix is going to vary, but the overall goal, if the mindset is I'm trying to educate buyers so they understand more about what we do, our category, our product, where the market's going, and I'm going to use all means possible in order to get that message to the right people, which would include paid organic, then it actually becomes quite simple. You just have two different delivery mechanisms that you can use across a lot of different channels in order to get that message to someone. It might require repackaging. But I would distill it down in your mind that way. Most people think about paid the way that you just mentioned. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just what people, how people have been trained to think about it.
4: Quick follow-up question. Of course. Um, I like this idea. I I really do. Like, I, I love the fact that as a top tier marketer, you should know how both organic and paid work. But is it actually possible? Because... Like you can be really good in three things, but can you be good in 20 things as a marketer? And I think the answer is no. I think a lot of marketers try to like learn the whole system, but then they're kind of mediocre. So for example, like you look at April Dunford, right? She knows positioning super, super well, right? And she's like the go-to. So I just, it's something that's been on my mind. That's why I ask. I think there's, it's like, it's this thing where we we think we can cover everything and do an amazing job at everything, but really maybe we should focus on what we're, what we're really good at.
1: I think both ways can work. I think that a marketer can only be good at three things is a limiting belief. Totally. Like I could probably list off 20 things right now that I think that I'm better than almost anyone in marketing at customer research, Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, creating a video podcast, distributing, hosting a live event, doing events and speaking, writing copy for a LinkedIn post. I could go on for a while, you know what I'm saying? So if you look at it in the micro or at the channel level, you can be good at at a lot of different things. It's about putting yourself in the position and the places to actually do them so that you can be good, right? When I learned these things, I spent two years running demand at a growth stage company where I did everything. I built HubSpot automation. I integrated it with Salesforce. I did sales ops. I worked on sales process optimization. I routed the leads to sales. I called leads that we generated from lead gen campaigns. I made the eBooks. I was the host of the podcast. I ran the Facebook ads. I created the content for Facebook. I directed the creative. I reported on pipeline. I built the dashboards. You know what i mean and so if you're able to put yourself in a situation where you can build those breadth of skills and you put in the effort then you can learn a lot of those things i think the unfortunate part for a lot of marketers is they join a company that has 50 marketers and they get to do, just cover their little box and that's why people think that you can only be good at google ads and that if you try to do organic you wouldn't be able to do it and those are some of the trade offs between working at a big company and working at a small company or somewhere in between the marketing team that i worked on if you look at like If you exclude product marketing, that marketing team was four people, which gave me a lot of opportunity to, and the four people were mostly focused on field marketing. And so I came there and I was like, we need a digital strategy. Let's go do this. And I got to basically build the whole thing.
2: Yeah, makes sense. Cool.
1: That was a good one, Anna. Thank you.
2: All right. I loved this question that was submitted in advance, which is, can you do a deep dive on segmentation positioning and targeting through a demand gen lens for a non-marketing founder?
1: Segmentation targeting and positioning should not be looked at in a demand gen lens. It should be looked at in a business strategy lens. I come from a place where like Marketing strategy is synonymous with business strategy. We're figuring out who we're going after. It's driving the product strategy. It's figuring out how we're pricing and it's driving the distribution strategy. So the entire go to market revolves under the marketing strategy, which is different than a lot of companies, which I understand. But segmentation, targeting, and positioning is a business strategy. And so let's go through the example at uh, Refine Labs. Because so I don't want to use an example from a customer. So we do demand marketing We and digital demand. We could do that for any type of company, right? So if you think about it, e-comm, B2C, like uh, Fortune 500 B2C, medical device, pharma, financial services, SaaS, vertical construction. There's a million different things that you could do. And so it's going out. We had a base product, right? That I thought was differentiated. When I built it, the product was built for a recurring revenue model, high margin business that has an enterprise sales motion with a decent size like implementation and a multi-stakeholder sale. It was medical device, but the business outcomes were exactly the same. And so I looked at what are the other places where that has this type of business model that has high margins, recurring revenue model, enterprise sales motion, that also is high growth. And then you start to look at your different areas and, and you start to do customer research and understand what are like, what are people willing to pay for this? Right? So I went out and made a couple of proposals to e-commerce and people were like, I'll pay you 2k a month. And I was like, yeah, it's probably because you're selling like $40 shorts with like low margin. Like this is not the place where I want to be Like this model is built for enterprise products that can sustain a high customer acquisition cost. And so e-commerce got out pretty quickly. And you continue to go through and do those types of research and analysis. And the next thing that I did is I actually did a podcast with SAS CMOs and I did a podcast. It wasn't actually published, but I interviewed them and I got to understand what's going on. What are they working on? What are the challenges? Like basically figure a lot of those different things out, which help us narrow in that there's a core business problem here, which is that companies right now execute lead gen and don't understand how to do demand gen because of attribution and and marketing KPIs. And so through customer research, we found this major opening. This was in late 2019. It took me six, I had a business for six months before we found this, but you're you're always looking for it. And then you find it and then you, we have it and we go. And from then on, it's been, we're going after B2B enterprise SaaS with an enterprise sales motion. And the product wrote product for us, it's service, but we also are building products underneath it. The roadmap of what we're working on, what we're building and the messaging and everything are moving directly to that target. We've segmented even further. So if you think about segmentation, we looked at the types of companies based on their business model and different things like that, but also looked even deeper into funding, their current marketing model, what they spend on marketing right now, Whether the marketing leader reports to a sales leader or directly into the CEO, there's a lot of different variables. Also, where do they learn about marketing? How do they get their strategy information? Those types of things are also important when you think about segmentation and it narrowed it in to a very, at the beginning, we could have gone after millions of accounts and we narrowed it into about five, maybe maybe a little over 10,000 total. And when you're able to segment which a lot of companies will never do this exercise right they would rather try and sell to a hundred thousand accounts than pick ten thousand that they have a way better advantage to win but when you pick the ten thousand and then you segment down you build the product and you build the messaging around it you win a lot more and so that was one example segmentation is figuring out what are the different ways that we can slice and dice our customers based on customer data retention sales win rates qualitative market research that we've been able to do how can we slice and dice this most companies and p do it through easily attainable firmographic company data we use some of it but it's not the whole story the most valuable things are the, typically what i find are the things that don't come in from like data that you buy on zoom info In order to get that information, you actually have to go and talk to customers and understand what's going on. Segmentation, once you've decided on all the different segments that exist, you have to figure out which one are we going to target in order to have the highest probability to win so that we stay focused, so that marketing is going in one direction, product is going in one direction, sales is going in one direction. Targeting, and then positioning from there, right? our positioning at Refine Labs would be very different if we were selling to e-commerce companies instead of B2B SaaS companies. And so because we've been very, or if we were going after everybody, our positioning would be different, right? If we were going after everybody, you might not even call it demand gen because a lot of industries don't even know what demand gen means. And so because we've picked this specific target, our positioning becomes so narrow and so specific, which is why it's highly relevant and we win more. And so the key on this is one, doing customer research and being open to different ways to segment. And then two, which a lot of companies struggle with from a strategy perspective is making choices about who you're not going to target. Kind of went all over the place. I'd be happy to answer a follow up on that one.
2: Uh, So a while back, I I posted a question and I asked, like, when should you hire your first marketer if you're building a SaaS company? And like 85% of people said before 1 million ARR. And a lot of people's reasoning for that was you need someone who can do the segmentation and the positioning and all that. Do you feel like founders should be hiring a product marketer first before 1 million ARR? Do you feel like founders can do that themselves? How would you think about that if you were not already a person who can do this kind of stuff?
1: I haven't met too many founders that can really do this level of like strategy and segmentation. So there's some out there and I'm sure that there's, I'm, I'm sure that they're self-aware enough to know that they can do it, but I think that a lot of people can't. And I think that the first marketing hire at that stage, a lot of companies hire a, like a manager level growth marketer and hoping that like a $95,000 a year marketer is going to run lead gen and pump up all these leads for the seven salespeople that they just hired which doesn't work <laughs> like i don't know what to say it just doesn't work it's the marketing death wish and so instead of doing that i highly recommend that companies think about strategy first and so if you the first thing that you did was you hired a marketing strategist that could figure out segmentation targeting positioning and then you just had messaging a better website and you've redirected your sales force in the right direction where you have a higher probability to win that would be the best use of marketing funds at that point, instead of foundation that after that, you could add a growth marketer or a demand gen person.
2: All right, well, the questions are coming tonight because we have 81 people here, but Hell I do yeah. think we should make some time for the next agenda items. So let's do that and then we'll dive back into questions.
1: Oh, let's go to the questions. You know, do right? we could just go questions forever. I don't feel all that passionate about this topic anyway. Let's go.
2: <laughs> all right. So this one, I feel like we get all the time. So it's a good opportunity to clarify your thinking on this. But smaller businesses need strategic demand gen insights that are actionable within a budget that is less than 10K a month. And the way Refine labs may not thinks may not be the right fit for that. So what are your alternative recommendations was how the question was asked.
1: First, I would challenge you to think about whether or not our recommendations are relevant, right? Like it was only three years ago where we had one employee and then we've done the things that we're saying and now we're 60 employees with no funding. So I'd question whether or not it's relevant to you. I think that a lot of the advice could be relevant. And I think that without a budget, what you do have is time, right? When I didn't have a budget and I was trying to figure out digital, there's information and resources everywhere. And there's a ton of, if you think the right way, you can experiment and learn and figure out what buyers are doing. And you can literally just figure it out. 2017, before that, I had never been in Salesforce. I didn't, had never operated in HubSpot. You go in there, you start doing it, you read some web resources, you do onboarding, you watch some videos, you figure stuff out. And so, especially at the early stage, what people don't understand is that Getting marketing to really work is hard. It's hard. And so for whatever reason, people are—they have a huge sales team that can't close business. And they think that marketing is going to all of a sudden, with the snap of a finger, figure all this stuff out. And if your sales team can't sell the product, then and you think that marketing is going to be easy to figure it out, it's not. Because of the way that companies have positioned, mainly agencies position marketing about, hey, what's going to pump up leads. So you see these like rocket ship graphs and things like that vanity metrics that especially early stage first-time founders just don't have a clear understanding of what it actually takes for marketing to drive significant revenue in a scalable way. But my recommendation would be to use a lot of stuff in this podcast to talk to your customers and to try a couple of the core channels. Depending on your business, we've gone through them a lot, but I think that LinkedIn organic podcast and one ad channel, one paid social ad channel would be a great thing to do with a low budget to try and try and learn some stuff.
2: All right. And now I have a question from the opposite end of the spectrum, which is if you are in a huge company, how would you approach trying to get some traction in organic social If basically you're in a huge marketing org that runs social, a social media machine that embraces social in silos.
1: What do you mean? What's social in silos mean?
2: I assume it means that if you're the person who asked this question, feel free to jump on, but I assume it means that like you have an entire team of people that's running LinkedIn and an entire team of people that's running Instagram and like they don't talk to each other and they don't talk to product marketing and... How would you try to make inroads with organic social?
0: So that's exactly what I'm talking about. So I, uh, I sit in the field marketing organization and being close to the sales teams, I'm hearing a lot and I officially oversee the social budget, but there's a whole machine behind it. And I'm sitting here going, this could be interesting. This could be interesting. Let's do this. Why don't we try this? And 95% 95% of the time, it's like, well, do you have an asset for that? Is there something that we can put into market that's already been improved by corporate? I'm like, well, no, because I'm kind of, you know, like left off center and just wanting to try. So that's sort of where the question comes from. Like, if you want to try and make your mark and put something out there as a trial, how does one do that?
1: I think you got two options option one is you figure out who pulls the strings at the leadership level to cut you some slack when we were doing this in medical device it's a regulated industry marketing do, running ads on facebook making medical claims is something that some people especially in these types of industries are scared of so they use it as an excuse that the regulations are in the way so that they can't do this on facebook but they put the same exact message on their website and in their trade show booth and everywhere else so it's just an excuse and so if you can but through working and figuring out who those people were and who made the decisions and demonstrating to the CEO who wanted to drive revenue, that this was a minimum minimal risk compared to other things that we were doing. And it was going to drive a way bigger impact that we had CEO support to get legal and medical and regulatory to kind of slow down a little bit while we prove this stuff out. So one way is to figure out who pulls the strings. So that you get get some slack so that you can actually create content faster so that you can get that asset into market. That's one option. The other option is to go to a different company that thinks differently about social and moves faster. Um, and so
0: while I yeah. have you, so, I mean, my question around content syndication on LinkedIn ads okay, and just sort of best practices and what makes sense in LinkedIn ads, because I have a an asset that is in content syndication that could potentially be repurposed for LinkedIn. And I just don't, I'm not familiar enough with it. Like, does that work? on LinkedIn, you know, in your perspective,
1: it's the, uh, a a PDF piece of content. Yeah.
0: It is. Yep. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. it's the most common like B2B marketing play that exists on LinkedIn ads.
0: So that Um, would be a no.
1: It's the most common play (laughs) that people do. If you measure it against leads, then I, I guess you could say it works if you measure it against qualified opportunities, because those leads convert to qualified opportunities at about less than 2%. And so if you look at it at qualified opportunities, it's pretty expensive qualified ops. And then from there they win to close one at less than 10%. And so you're winning somewhere around one in a thousand.
0: Yeah. When we're all about MQLs, which is extremely unfortunate, but anyway, thank
1: you. Yeah. So big enterprise companies run these because they blend all the MQLs together to run this big machine. So wherever you can get, contacts from any of these places for cheap just goes into a pool and goes into the machine the only way that i think this has a shot if i'm just being honest with you is if you can (laughs) carve out one segment or one target and say we're going to measure marketing differently we're going to do stuff differently in a pilot consider this like a think tank thing if we figure this stuff out it could change our business in the future and pitch it as a pilot right for like and i think that could
0: happen we'll see I'll, i'll keep you posted but thank you
1: yeah, that's the recommendation in the enterprise because it's just a the machine is big and is. a lot of repercussions for to like changing the gears of the machine, you know? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Happy to help.
2: All right. I'm gonna give you another like case study sort of question. Oh wow, we've got a dog here on the screen. My company is after researchers at CPG. Enterprise companies and QSR. I'm not familiar with the acronym QSR,
1: but- Quick serve restaurant.
2: Oh, okay. There, you're familiar. Basically the hardest people to get other than marketers, how would you recommend running ABM when your CFO and C-suite is obsessed with direct response and attribution?
1: If your target is this small, then your deal size must be quite large. And your TAM has got to be pretty small too. I don't know how many companies fit this mold it would be interesting to know but my guess would be that there's probably less than a thousand and if you tiered it out there's probably a 50 to 100 account tier one and so with that size tam i'd be going um high touch and so Mm -hmm. the the challenge when companies think about high touch they call it abm but it's really account-based sales right and so i would encourage people to think about this more like marketing and sales, which would mean I might try and go out and find someone that works at one of those companies that people think about. might consider influencer marketing. I might consider bringing that person into our company to create content. I'd figure out that piece. And then I'd consider whether or not there's a community play here. So there's a community play. And then I would think about, is there premium events and experiences that we can put on for these people that are like completely unmatched? You're probably... I'm just guessing, but my guess is quarter million plus deal sizes here, but it could be over a million. And so having 10 non-competitive companies come to your event in San Diego or Tulum or Miami and putting on a great event for them and an experience over a one and a half day period so that they, you know, get some things from your company but they learn from the people that they trust the most because you brought those influential people there and you put on an incredible experience. Those are some of the ingredients that are necessary in order to, I think, to succeed in a small TAM. The challenge is that companies, when they do that event, they wanna to sell to to people right now. And when you wanna to sell to to people right now, you do different stuff, the event isn't as good. You don't think about the content, you just think about trying to get someone to sign up so that you can cold call them or put them in your sequence afterwards or have a reason to reach out. And so removing the intent of, I'm trying to get this person into pipeline next week I think is one of the major major unlocks but I gave three or four like key ideas and that's probably essentially the roadmap outside of like paid social that I would use to get to those people
2: that was your question and you want to come on and ask a follow-up you're welcome to come on otherwise (laughs) on to the next Jameson I think you should come on and ask your question that you just dropped in the chat
1: the amount of questions tonight are awesome What's up, Jameson? Let's do this. Cool. Thanks. Thank you for having
5: me. This is actually my first State of Demand Gen Live. And Great to have you I'm here. Lurking on LinkedIn Organic with your post. <laughs> and I just kind of like fell into a role. Uh, I'm an SEO manager for a startup company that I work at. And I kind of have taken on these new job responsibilities in, in the interim of managing our paid search and paid social accounts, probably for the foreseeable future for maybe for like next like month or two. And it's caused me to kind of like pay a lot more attention to just kind of our paid search strategies. We're definitely on that MQL hamster wheel that you speak a lot to. And it's so funny. So I've been like over the last weekend, I probably watched like six State of Demand Gen episodes. And so it's kind of surreal that I'm like just like talking on it now a couple of days later. But uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things. Like I I saw the the, uh, Precurify walkthrough that you did. I don't know when you Mm. did it, but that kind of helped like provide some initial insights on paid search performance. So I'm working with like a paid search consultant on that. But like for like LinkedIn paid search, we're doing a lot of that kind of like direct response, uh, lead gen form stuff that just like does not work. And so I have two questions mainly. One, when you talk about kind of researching the customer and developing that kind of organic paid search content distribution strategy, I guess, like how, from someone who's kind of like just stepping into the mix, like, what would you recommend or like good ways to kind of go about getting started talking to like other like content marketing, partner marketing people that I work with directly to get buy-in on uh, some of these like newer initiatives. And then uh, secondly, with the new VP marketing coming in just the idea of like, how can I help ease their transition and maybe set some reporting or get some reporting going of just a different way to kind of measure performance. Just want to see mm-hmm. if you had like takeaways there.
1: Thanks. Yeah, who are you selling to? We are targeting small
5: business owners offering retirement benefits, Okay, uh, a 401k platform.
1: Sounds good. It was interesting there because you actually, um you called out what, where I was going to go, which is that in order to do a lot of the things that I'm, you could change paid search and focus on demos without changing the metrics completely. But in order to do the social stuff, you actually have to change how you measure marketing. right? And so you called that out. If you are optimizing against MQLs and it gets measured against that, then these programs are going to look like they're failing when they're not. And so it's aligning on what we recommend and what we help companies do is align on a website, high intent conversion funnel. We had, had another CMO on the podcast today that we talked about this and they've made this change about two years ago. And just by eliminating all the garbage, their pipeline went up by more than hundred percent, like almost, almost overnight, just because their people were focused on the right ones instead of searching for needles and haystacks with thousands of leads. And so focus on a high intent funnel where buyers are like, Hey, I want to buy this stuff right now and measuring top level marketing against pipeline, qualified pipeline, but we would consider hero that you're going to win at more than 20%. And from there, when you do that, all of the other MQL tactics don't help you hit that goal. So then they be, those tactics become irrelevant and that's what where marketing needs to get to. And then from there, then you can start experimenting with paid social and things like that because it's going to have a much higher impact on driving people that actually want to buy that get that far in the sales process. And it also helps you get way more aligned with sales. So a potential way to do this would be to get aligned with sales leadership on this with your v, the incoming VP as well, that this is a new way to look at marketing where we're trying to tightly align what marketing is driving towards with what sales outcomes are combining AE qualified pipeline with a quality control win rate metric to make sure that the pipeline that we're putting in is actually driving revenue and then if you're over that then we can look at this looking at content distribution is one way to look at it i think that opening it up a little bit more to just looking at it like direct lines of communication with customers. I think when you think content distribution, it's the way that I used to frame it. So there's nothing wrong with saying it that way. But I think that when people look at it, they think about taking SEO content or website content, and then trying to put it in social and hope that people click and read. And our strategy has actually evolved on this over the past 12 months with a lot of tracking and data across a lot of companies where actually we don't... Like It's cool if people click, but I don't care whether they do or not, because I'm w- I'm looking for the message to be consumed inside of the feed where everyone actually sees it, not where 0.5% of people click. One out of 200 people get to my landing page. I want every all 200 people to see the actual message in the feed. It's not just distributing the content and trying to get someone onto the website. It's repackaging the content to tell the story natively in the distribution channel, which makes measurement even more challenging, which is bad for marketers that measure marketing the old way. It's great for us because we know how to measure it and it's way more effective. And so figuring out how to get that story communicated to your buyer in the feed, I think is the major unlock here.
5: Yeah, it's really helpful. I think uh, kind of communicating the content like natively, like uh, just talking to customers natively through like LinkedIn stuff. We don't really have like a person that is delegated to doing that responsibility. So that'll be Mm -hmm. definitely something to work out, but I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, I mean you you mentioned it yourself when you came on here, like quote unquote lurking on LinkedIn, right? Which means mm-hmm. consuming content in the feed without engaging, which is what all your buyers do when they see good, well-done ads. Mm-hmm. They consume it, they don't engage with it. The impact was there. It's the exact same thing that a lot of CMOs do with my content. And anyone, anyone that actually thinks about how they how they consume LinkedIn or consume Instagram you consume the the ads. It's just whether or not that ad was relevant positioned in the right way. And it was targeted well, but they're, they're getting consumed there natively, which is an important thing. The next thing that I'll call out is that we go back to the thing that I mentioned where there's never been a better time to be a B2B marketer. Like you're in a great spot right now. You went from SEO manager to now managing all the paid. So mm. being able to go in there and use this time to put together a new strategy, learn a new skill, drive results widen the scope of your work maybe you also want to get into to market automation and crm and start doing some pipeline reporting then you basically own full stack except for content and so i think that's an awesome opportunity
5: yeah i'm super excited by it by it um kind of just like fell in my lap but definitely trying to make the most of it and these uh episodes definitely help happy to
6: help
2: all right the questions keep coming we're gonna bring on chris morgan next
6: Thanks, MJ. Uh, Chris, big fan. It's really crazy to hear your voice not at 2x speed. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm in slow motion. <laughs> so um, I work in an awesome marketing team. My boss, my manager, who hired me, made me aware of Chris Walker and um, and DGMG and all of that. Built part of my vendor network out of DGMG's network. Anyways, getting a lot of dividends from this podcast mm-hmm. and a lot of strategy that we're we're putting into place. I got something kind of interesting. I found out about this yesterday. I have this opportunity to lead a new SDR team on the sales side. My, the CEO is like an acting head of sales. We haven't hired a head of sales yet. We work with a consultant uh, who's like a sales agency. Uh, I'm going to shadow him to stand up this SDR team, two new SDRs. And I'm sort of forming it. Like, I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, We're throwing around the idea of sales comp around that. So, Maybe a way to distill it is like marketers sitting in sales. The way I sort of think like my sort of agenda is to try to turn these SDRs into marketers, but in the AEC so that they can physically act the way that marketing acts in, in the way, like developing relationships in our audience on social and getting in contact, however, is most effective. So whether that be via email via social, via phone, you know, back and forth. So anyways, like, because I, I do know like some degree of your thoughts on this type type of stuff, mm-hmm. but I'd love to know what you might do, how you might start to structure, you know, would you take on the sales comp
1: question? And yeah, what would you do in, the, in my seat? Are there AEs in the business? Yeah, four AEs, four okay. AEs right now. And then you mentioned sales comp. I'm not sure I really understand the question. Is that like personally for you or is it something different?
6: Yeah, so I would be, the performance of the sdrs which would be to book demo basically book a demo for aes mainly outbound first and then also tap into our top of funnel try to pull it down the funnel but a similar kind of like outbound type of thinking that's like the current thought from especially the sales consultant and the ceo i've been mm-hmm. running my own experiments in terms of outbound that are like way different than the way that because we've also outsourced some SDRs, and it's been you know what you might expect. So it's kind of an interesting situation where like I'm really experimental, but I'm also start trying to learn like how more standard SDR approach might work. That's mm-hmm. like coming from the the sales consultant perspective. So some other context like uh, relatively, lo- I would say like SMB client, like customer SaaS we sell to architects very specifically and structural engineers.
1: Mm-hmm. So th- that's just some more context about the challenge. Mm-hmm. And you so so you sell that to have small architectural and structural engineering firms as your customer? Yeah, max seat count is 30. So these are pretty yep. small firms. Yeah. And so it's a velocity short sales cycle of yeah. the deal too. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'll just let you know some of the things that are going through my head and we'll talk through it. I thought it was interesting. A, a lot of people, when they ask this question, they say, I want to go and take these SDRs and I want to make them do more of marketers. And the first thing I think when I hear that is like, why wouldn't you just get get new people that can do the job better? Right? So people always look at SDRs for whatever reason, they try and take the existing resource and then fit them into a new job as opposed to being like, if we had this new job." Maybe we need different skills. Maybe we need a different hiring profile. Maybe we want someone different. and thought about it differently. That's just a, a call out. It's not really that important, but I just wanted to note that the way that this, that you described the performance KPIs here, it can be totally gamed. And so if you wanted to just like pump up your comp, then you could, it's super easy to figure out how to book demos. This is what every like company that has SDRs that incentivize this way get wrong is that it's super easy to book demos. It's way harder to book demos that become closed one. And so if it was book demos with no cost targets, give away gift cards. You can do a, run a bunch of ads, do direct response, put calendar links. There's a million things to book demos where you have 40, 50% show rate, but you get a lot of people and then they move to close lost afterwards. This is why this type of incentive or performance structure for SDRs, I think is so antiquated and outdated because your SDRs don't even align with AE outcomes, right? We want marketing to go and get scored on revenue with sales, but then you go and look at SDRs and they're comped on book meetings, not revenue. So those are a couple of thoughts. But now that we have all that stuff out there, just my initial thoughts, let's talk through how you could do it because there's definitely definitely some ways. Um, If the goal truly is booked demos, then the first place that i would consider going would be probably thoughtful direct response linkedin messages um and it's not a play that i like i think probably a lot of people were surprised about that but what i'm doing is giving advice based on the goal so if the goal is book demos and you want those in short order then doing some like cold outbound tactics like that would be the quickest way to get there so that would be one way if you move back and you took a step back and you said, okay, we're not going to get booked on, we're not going to get comped on meetings. We're going to get comped on, we're going to comp 25% on meetings and 75% on close one deals. Then your strategy starts to change. Then you're in the position where you want these SDRs to think more like marketers and which would require you to think about whether you not needed a different resource because the goal now is not to get someone into a meeting. It's to get someone close one. Those are some initial thoughts. We'd love to go back and forth here. Yeah. I think what,
6: like what we're seeing right now is like, we need to shorten our sales, like basically the, the whole funnel sales cycle Yeah. Like everything from for awareness all the way to close. Mm-hmm. How long um, is it? Like great example. I was in a sales call today, basically 13 people that haven't closed yet. And it's like six months, six months on it's got yeah, to be less than a 10 K deal. Yeah, exactly. So like, we need to like really speed up velocity. Mm-hmm. Now we, we also will have like same day close,
1: you know? So it's it's not like that's always going on, but. Mm-hmm. Do you have a hypothesis to why there's a difference? Like why some are taking six months and why some are closing in a week? Just intent, like very, like mm-hmm. ready to buy the product right now. Whereas
6: like we'll have others where we're just introducing to them to the problem,
1: but they're mm-hmm. moving slowly to to acting on it yeah i was analyzing this is a side tangent we're gonna get back to it but it's going to be helpful i think i was analyzing a company the past couple of weeks about a 40 million arr SaaS company inside of their sales force and i was looking at it and i was like you're selling a 33k acv product and your sales cycle is 209 days or something on average like this is way too long and they were like no it's just our industry it's just this like making excuses but you should be selling those deals in 75 days or less The reason is because you're going and getting buyers when they're 10% of the way done, not when they should be entering pipeline when they're 80% of the way done buying. And so people think that their sales cycles are long and their win rates are low and those types of things because of the industry dynamics. It's really because of the go-to-market. Sales cycles are longer because of how you're going to market with a full outbound kind of motion where typically we see sales cycles are 2 to 3x longer than they need to be when your go-to-market motion is focused that way, it also can be low intent lead gen marketing into that, which is basically the same thing. And so like an early stage company, it's interesting because there's limited resources, right? But the solution here is really doing dem- true demand marketing for the category so that when people come to you, they are, are, they already have a lot of those things done. They know the problem. They've already considered you as a vendor. They know what the price is. They've already talked about it with their team then you get the velocity motion. So it's really about kind of tuning that in, or it could be figuring out a different offer, right? So we have some, uh, uh, one of our customers in particular, where most, almost all direct response paid social, in my experience, does not drive revenue, but they have an offer that's like basically, here's all this stuff for free and you're gonna drive more revenue. They have a really interesting, compelling offer where that type of stuff can work. It's just a unique situation that most companies don't have. But you could rethink the offer.
2: Any follow-ups there, Chris?
6: No, enough to chew on. Thanks a lot, Chris. All right, good to see you,
1: Chris.
2: All right, our attendees are uh, slowly, I think, coming to the end of everyone's attention span here on Tuesday night. So maybe we'll wrap up with one more topic. I had, I think, this will be a couple of birds with one stone. So. People are interested in a story from your archives, which is about how you got your med tech podcast off the ground when you did that. They're bought into like why you do it, right? You do it first for market research, then to build relationships and have uh, like high value content you can distribute, but they're like, how do I even get started with this when I'm not marketing to other marketers?
1: So this is a cool story. When I was... Initially getting the podcast off the ground, I was managing a segment where we were, where my segment was the children's hospitals. And inside of the children's hospitals, our product was highly differentiated based on clinical data. However, most clinicians out there didn't know the clinical data exists because it hadn't been communicated well. And we relied on salespeople to bring the paper there and then have salespeople that don't aren't clinicians try and explain clinical medical scientific information to very smart, sophisticated people, and it didn't work. And so when I went out and assessed the market and I saw what, how our prospects pushed back when our salespeople tried to, to communicate these things, I said, wouldn't it be way easier if we took our most evangelist customers that are medical physicians, their peers that have actually done this large-scale, randomized clinical trial research themselves and published it? Why wouldn't I go and get the person who wrote this study and then interview them on our podcast so that instead of our sales rep trying to explain this very complicated concept to a physician, we could just send them the video. It's revolutionary, right? That's how it came up. And then my first two or three people were people that had done the major studies with our product that showed that it was significantly better for their patients than what they were using right now. And those were the first three episodes. And so I reached out to the people that did the study. We, we knew them because they had done studies on our product and had been doing them for years. And so our company knew who they were and had relationships with them. And so I reached out to them and said, Hey, you want to be our, want to be on our podcast? I'll fly out to Arizona, uh, next month. And we'll do everything. All you gotta do is show up. And we did the first one. The next one we did at a, at a, we actually, we did the next two at a conference in Hawaii with two other physicians and conferences were a really big way for us to create the podcast because we had a ton of people, from Israel, Australia, Canada, all these places where they're only in the U S once or twice a year, and they're for these conferences. And so we had our major recordings happening at these conferences with global, uh, medical researchers. And it was a phenomenal strategy over the next, whatever I was there, the next 18, maybe 12 or 18 months while I was there, we got up to about 36 episodes of that, that podcast and it was highly impactful, but that's how, how we did it. One is figure out the strategy. The strategy for us is I need, because we have a communication gap at the sales level and the marketing level, I'm going to take the people who did the study and bring them directly to my customer. So that was the strategy. And then it was figuring out, okay, who are the people that are going to be the guests? And I identified those people based on who wrote the studies. And then it was me figuring out how am I going to tailor the interview and the questions to communicate the story and the narrative that I'm trying to tell. And luckily, i had been studying that clinical data for six months, and I have an engineering and medical background, and so I could understand it. And I felt like I was able to guide the conversations in a way where I could predict what the objections were going to be from our people or from the market, because I had already talked to them. I could predict what those objections are, and I could insert them into the podcast so that when someone had an objection, the next question would be addressing it. And... I guess that's the story of the podcast it's honestly not that complicated but that was how it came about
2: i think uh you can do a lot of things just tactically to make it easier for the guests to participate right so you went to them you had all of the logistics figured out you went to them at the conferences you had all the questions prepared right Mm -hmm. but at a certain point it's kind of just like you have to ask them to participate and you can't be afraid of them saying no because if they say no that's not the end of the world it's not a terrible outcome and if they say yes look what you've achieved
1: depending on who you're targeting you can pick people where most likely they're going to say yes like these people who spent three years doing this clinical trial to publish this body of work for something that they believed in they want people to know about that study they're proud of it Like it takes a ton of effort and they're the primary and principal investigator of those clinical trials. They want to be on the podcast and share that story so that when they're like groundbreaking research can get implemented into medical practice and do better things for patients. And the same exact thing exists in all functions. CFO figures out a new way to do X, Y, and Z. They want to tell people about it. So it's about, I guess, figuring out who are Every function will have people that are already creating content for the internet and being quote unquote thought leaders. We call them key opinion leaders in medical. You got to know who those people are. You got to know who your customers are listening to, who's producing the information. And those should be a lot of your, your main target for the podcast.
2: And the final follow-up question to that is what if you have no followers to your podcast yet i assume this is kind of a double-edged question of how do i get more followers to the podcast but also how can i incentivize people to actually be a guest on the podcast if, if nobody listens to the podcast yet
1: and we've been doing a podcast for a while and at the beginning nobody knew about it and like i mentioned the first eight episodes i did we didn't even have a podcast and we never published them except for on youtube nobody asked I don't even ask people ask me if they want to go on their podcast all the time for all I know they haven't even recorded an episode or they never publish it. I don't know. So I, I think that you're overthinking that one. I don't think a lot of people actually check and vet those things. Additionally, if you like, I think that thinking that the only way for a podcast to be effective is for people to listen to it in audio, I think is a very narrow minded way of looking at it. And so when we did this, like, it was a video podcast, quote unquote, but we never published it on Spotify or Apple. It was purely for video. And so what we did is we took those videos and then I put them on our website and then I we took them to our 50,000 person. We had almost the entire country for every single stakeholder in our email database. And I was sending these videos out to email to people. And when you're producing one of these videos a week, you don't need email nurtures. You can just run bulk email strategies targeted at the right people who are engaged and you don't need to push people through automated emails. So the content is way more relevant. You're listening to audience feedback. People can reply to the emails, which we got a lot of them, just like people would comment on your post. And so email was working really well and we would chop them up and use them for, for ads in organic social at that time, mainly on Facebook. And so, when you think about a podcast you need to think about it as we have the audio podcast pillar but often you need the micro content and other distribution channels to create the awareness for the podcast to get people to even listen to the podcast
2: all right shout out to everyone who asked an awesome question tonight you made this very easy for me so yeah appreciate you all
1: Shout out to David too. We did our first round here on with this, uh, what do we got? We got this iPad projector so I can actually look at the camera so people aren't going to call me out and damn, this stuff works. Feels good. Um, so if anyone wants, if anyone's working on their podcast and want to amp it up, we can give you some tips on on how to do that because this is really working for me. I think it's better than the old way. Um, so that's great. Closing out here, we had another topic. We'll kick that can down the road to another week. because I know we need to get people off to bed. It's almost 9 PM on the East coast. And so great to have you all here. I appreciate all the support. I think we had one of our highest attended episodes in a long while. So great to have everyone here. I love it. Hope to see you all for the event with Dave on Thursday and hope to see you next week. There's never been a better time to be a B2B marketer than right now. And I think that the people that are here working on getting better, learning, Got a pretty good shot of being in that top tier that I was talking about. So kudos to all of you and we'll see you next week. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, It's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.